Welcome to the Ready to Run podcast. I'm your host, Efren Kabalias, DO, sports medicine physician based out of the Boulder, Colorado area. And I'm your host, Kurt Roser, doctor of physical therapy, also based in the Boulder area. The goal of our podcast is to engage in thoughtful discussions with athletes, coaches, clinicians, and researchers to share knowledge within the field of sports medicine and inspire progression in the sport of running. We hope to empower individuals to navigate injuries, reduce injury risk, optimize training and performance, and provide listeners with the tools needed to get ready to run. You'll be able to listen to us on Apple iTunes and other podcast formats. You can also follow us on Instagram at ReadyToRunPodcast. So in today's Downweek episode, we'll talk about a very common running injury that we see in our clinics. That's lateral hip pain. Um, so just to paint a picture for this, uh, let's start with a example case where we have a 33 year old female coming in with presentation of pain along the lateral hip started over the past three to four weeks, no trauma. The patient's currently uh, training for a marathon and had a increase in training load and intensity and, uh, has no symptoms of numbness, tingling, or any radiating symptoms past the knee. So this is probably something you've probably seen in your clinic two or three times this week, I'm guessing. Oh yeah, definitely. Especially with, uh, people getting ready for, uh, fall marathons and, uh, and whatnot. Yeah. So super, super common location of pain in runners. And then also in, in uh, the non-running population as well. I think it's usually pretty straightforward, but, um, it, I think it's also pretty hard to rule out, you know, the underlying, um, or excuse me, uh, like, um, other possibilities for as far as a hip diagnosis or, referral from the low back. So there's kind of a lot going on in that area. So um, it can be something that's really simple to uh, diagnose or some people you're kind of takes, uh, takes a lot more thought to go into it. So um, yeah, I guess when, when this person walks into your, your clinic, what are, um, what are you going to run through to kind of rule out other uh, intraarticular or uh, referral sources of pain for that area? Yeah. So I think, I think it starts a lot with just the initial history and exam, uh, pain along the lateral hip, uh, typically in a postmenopausal female, uh, I'm thinking more of a gluteal tendinopathy just cause that's the population that tends to be most affected. And there's about a, a two to one female to male ratio in that population. And, uh, if it's a younger patient, uh, we're also starting to think about other, other issues as well, but typically I'll, examine them. Um, and if it's pain directly on the greater trochanter, so that's that bump that you feel on the side of your hip, very focal pain is able to reproduce their symptoms. Most classically, that's going to be your gluteal tendinopathy. And uh, one important thing to, to point out is a little bit of terminology. I keep using the term gluteal tendinopathy because that is the preferred term these days. Uh, this is previously thought of as either a trochanteric bursitis, hip bursitis, or maybe greater trochanteric pain syndrome. So truthfully, um, whatever you call it doesn't really matter so much, uh, but the underlying pathology really is uh, tendinopathy of the gluteal tendons. And there was a study uh, done in 2001 where they, they took MRIs of patients with lateral hip pain and uh, found that nearly all of these patients had evidence of gluteus medius or minimus tendinopathy but that swelling of the bursa. So a true trochanteric bursitis was really only present in about 8% of cases and typically didn't not occur in the absence of the tendinopathy. So you have a normal appearing tendon 
unlikely to have an isolated bursitis. Um, so that's the first thing we're looking at. Yeah. And people still, uh, you know, come in and ask about the, the bursitis piece a lot. And I usually just say it may or may not be part of the pain source, but either way, the underlying problem is, you know, we need to get these tendons stronger and the musculature around your hip stronger and address, you know, issues in the kinetic chain. Uh, I, I like to use the rotator cuff analogy for the shoulder to these gluteal muscles. Cause, uh, I think that kind of helps people conceptualize because a lot of people are familiar with the uh, rotator cuff and people that have had injuries or surgeries there. So, um, that's sometimes a helpful analogy. Uh, these are kind of the, the, uh, rotator cuff muscles of the hip, so to speak, your, your glute med. And, um, once we've got it diagnosed, then it's, uh, usually the most important thing is offload from things that are ir irritating and finding what amount of running or walking or, or whatever the activity is that that person can handle. And some people are, are pretty flirted up and it's, it's tricky to, um, you know, even like ADLs can be, uh, can be, uh, problematic sleeping. Uh, so finding people a way that you can get, uh, comfortable and avoid, uh, compressing the tendon, um, during side, side sleeping by putting a pillow in between the knees. Um, sometimes we have to modify exercises to avoid compressing the tendon, um, again, bringing that thigh across your body into hip adduction uh, is going to be an irritating factor. Another thing along those lines, people have tried stretching or rolling and kind of irritated things farther by just compressing the tendon up against the, the trochanter and um, not necessarily like damaging anything, but just irritating it by, by pulling the tendon across the, across the, the trochanter. So kind of minimize that compression and then start to get people stronger and back to activity. Yeah, totally. Yeah. With just kind of breaking down to like the basic tendon physiology, uh, we know that tendons are really good at sustaining tensile loads, but not so good at sustaining compressive loads. Um, so in the, in the setting of gluteal tendinopathy, which you have this degenerative tendon where at a biologic level, you have this change in um, something called proteoglycans, which then increase the tendon thickness. And that leads to disorganization of the collagen uh, fibers, which then leads to weakening of the ability uh, to sustain any repetitive loads. So one of the, one of the things you, yeah, like that you mentioned is that some of the common symptoms we see, it's not just their running life, um, but their ADLs climbing stairs, laying on the side, um, sitting with the legs crossed running, you know, and then you go into running where like running uphill, running on a camber, running on track, start to get aggravated. Yeah. I always ask people too, if they notice them, like that they always cross one leg or always stand with one hip kind of jutted out to the side, or if they've been carrying their baby on that one side. Um, cause there's a lot of like, um, sometimes like non-running things that can be irritating just posturally that we like tend to do that kind of puts that hip way out to the side and compresses the tendon. So I always try to like tease that out of people. And sometimes people have this aha moment of, oh yeah, I do always sit with that leg cross or I've been carrying my child on that side or, or whatnot. So kind of just looking at those things and talking with people about the non-running related things. Totally. Um, and I forgot to go back to your question about differential diagnosis. Um, cause there's really a couple simple things uh, that we have to um, think about. And um, I like to break it down into problems. When I, when I think about the hip, break it down to problems of problems of the ball and socket. So those are intraarticular problems. 
problems outside of the ball and socket. Those are muscles and tendons and then things that refer down, um, along the outside of the hip. Um, so ball and socket problems are like osteoarthritis, hip impingement, dysplasia, labrum tear. And on exam, these patients will typically present with groin pain or pain getting in and out of a car. Um, when you flex their hip to 90 degrees while they're lying on their back and then internally rotate the hip, um, if that pain refers laterally, um, I am kind of suspicious that maybe their lateral hip pain is not just due to tendinopathy, um, but maybe there's an intraarticular source of pain and you can't, you can't have both. Um, just have this in a pro- professional triathlete who we've been treating for a few months or initial complaint was lateral hip pain. Um, and initially I think that's where it was cause you press right over the trochanter. Um, and, uh, that was able to reproduce the pain and the radiographic imaging showed, uh, tendinopathy in the gluteus medius tendon. What was interesting is at the time of the MRI, um, there was also description of a labrum tear. And this is a whole conversation, but as, as we know, like there was a study by Philippon, which showed that if you, you know, basically if you get a hundred MRIs of, of the hip, that 70% of them will show labrum tears and maybe 30% of them are truly symptomatic labrum tears. Um, so there's a high false positive rate. So it's kind of hard to differentiate. Is the pain truly come from the labrum? Is it coming from the tendinopathy? And sometimes the pathologist reveals itself over time. You don't necessarily have to nail the diagnosis on the very first visit. Sometimes you have a working diagnosis and kind of tease it apart as, as, um, as you're starting to treat. Um, and so what we found was basically the, the lateral hip pain, um, the tenderness over the greater trochanter was, was going away, but the groin pain was starting to become more involved or wasn't improving and, um, had a hip impingement. And then three months later, um, after failing conservative treatment, went on to, um, hip arthroscopy surgery and was interesting because the MRI report said small labrum tear, no cam lesion, no pincer lesion. And then when they got inside, there was a pretty massive cam lesion and a detached labrum tear. Um, oh, so wow. just, yeah, super, super important to keep in the differential and not kind of pigeonhole yourself, um, throughout, you know, if the patient's not responding. Yeah. And that's a hard thing when people get referred in for a tendinopathy and then they're not getting better, then yeah, you got to give yourself a certain amount of time. And then, you know, patient's going to get frustrated. You're going to get frustrated and making sure to seek out more imaging, different opinions, um, just kind of like figure out what else might be going on, which is also really hard because um, we also know that tendinopathies take a long time to get better. So yeah, it's just a really... Uh, that's an interesting uh, case that you mentioned because uh, I think we have another uh, uh, case where um, might be a similar, uh, you know, there's maybe some underlying intraarticular on top of tendinopathy. Um, yeah. So just, you know, those are, are tough things to, to rehab, but from a PT perspective, it's honestly a lot of the same, um, a lot of same work, a lot of same exercises and, uh, just progressing uh, different control and strength exercises should help all of those things, hopefully in in an ideal world. Um, So I guess for lateral hip pain, the most important thing I think is finding that starting point of, of what they can tolerate for just some basic glute med strengthening. So some basic hip abduction. Uh, I always tell people like, look, this is boring, but we're going to do some, side plank variations, some, uh, open chain hip abduction variations. And, uh, you're just going to get really good at these over the next couple of weeks. And then we'll do stuff that's more interesting and, and harder, but 
yeah. Uh, so I started people pretty basic things and then, um, some, something for the glute mead and then definitely a big focus on the glute max in terms of strength and then also motor control. Um, so the, you know, single leg bridge or hip thruster, um, if people have access to, um, hex bar for deadlifts or, um, some sort of, um, hip extension, back extension machine at the, at the gym. I think those are all great options just to, uh, get some, some good glute max work. And yeah, those are kind of my priorities is, uh, getting the strength going and then whatever motor control deficits they might have, um, around the pelvis and lumbar spine, as well as the foot and ankle, um, are things that we kind of evolve as, as the treatment goes on and, and make, make more challenging and make more specific to running. And, um, yeah, people tend to like those are a little bit more, um, function functional or running specific. So people get more excited about those, I think. Yeah. And can you, can you like comment on how you monitor pain or, you know, are we, are we asking for a zero pain? Um, is there a sort of threshold of pain? Cause I know some, sometimes, um, you get these patients who can be a bit fear avoidant and their concern is the pain may be a reflection of them damaging the tendon and, um, or maybe they've been told that by somebody. Um, so what, what do you, um, advise in that situation? Yeah, definitely. You know, this is a stereotypical tendinopathy. Um, we use the pain monitoring model. So keep keeping their, their pain at a, a stable and tolerable level that, um, isn't getting worse with activity should kind of warm up. Um, and you shouldn't have too much pain after activity. Um, so I always tell people like, you're going to monitor the pain during, and then you're going to monitor it after for that 24 hour period. Um, and as long as you're a one or two or a three, maybe a four, you know, that might be acceptable during, and then just pay attention to how that soreness or stiffness feels, um, the rest of the day or the next morning when you wake up, or, you know, sometimes it felt fine when you went for your run, but then you were miserable and you couldn't, you know, sleep or, um, you're or having pain just with day-to-day -day life. So those are important things to, to monitor and, um, make sure that we're not toughing it out for our run and then just, uh, flared up for, for, uh, quite a bit afterwards, but definitely in my opinion, um, most of the time people can run through a little bit of pain. We just have to modify what they're doing, find, uh, find that kind of sweet spot of, um, backing off, maybe, you know, it's only a little bit, or, or maybe it's avoiding speed work or, you know, uh, a slanted road. If people are always running, you know, against traffic on a road that has a, you know, couple degree, uh, pitch to it. Um, maybe it's as simple as running on the other side of the road. Um, I've had a few, uh, marathon runners do that where they, you know, just avoid running with that hip. Um, you know, if it's their right hip and you're going against traffic, then that's going to always be working a little bit harder to keep your pelvis horizontal. So that was one easy fix that we worked with, with someone, but yeah, definitely should be able to work through, through some discomfort. And that's my strategy. One of the things I value most is uh, the role of physical therapy. Whenever we die, once we fully establish the diagnosis on this um, condition. And for me in my practice, I'll use ultrasound. So it's a rapid way of, of looking at tendon pathology, uh, without, um, the high cost and exposure and time associated with waiting for an MRI. Um, so you can look at the gluteal tendons and determine uh, if there is any signs of tendinopathy and then also the stage of it, whether it's in a reactive stage where it's really um, irritable and grumbly, or if it's in more of a degenerative stage or uh, 
reactive on degenerative, which is um, something we see commonly. But um, yeah, because patients come to me a lot of times uh, asking for an injection. And I'm, I'm usually pretty hesitant to start with that for several reasons. Uh, one is a really, really great study um, by uh, Alison Grimaldi called the LEAP trial. So this is a multi-center randomized controlled trial that was performed in Australia. And in terms of the demographics, these were 80, 82% of the population was female, uh, most commonly in that perimenopausal, postmenopausal stage. And they were divided into three groups. So there was an education group um, who got education plus exercise. So they got 14 sessions of supervised PT. So in person uh, over the course of eight weeks, and they included info about the condition, load management, um, reducing time spent in compression. So like the things you mentioned, like hip hanging, cross-legged positions, um, overstretching, trying to avoid those things um, or minimizing, excuse me, uh, minimizing uphill walking and large strides. The second group was a group uh, that received a corticosteroid injection. So they just had a single injection with a radiologist, um, no physical therapy. And then the third group was just a wait and see. They come into your office and you say, well, just watch this. Um, they saw a physical therapist once and they got some basic information about the condition. And so then they watched these patients over time. And then what they were assessing was their pain and then their global rating and functional outcome scores at eight weeks and at 52 weeks. And basically what they found was that the education plus physical therapy group, about 80% of their patients um, at the end of the study had uh, reported satisfaction and successful outcomes. They were happy with their hip. They were functioning well back to doing what they wanted to doing. Um, whereas the corticosteroid group, um, only about 60% of them reported satisfaction and successful outcome. And the wait and see group uh, was about 30%. So basically doing nothing is not super helpful. Mm. Uh, <laughs> we know that. So that's, that's your, you know, rest will fix things. We know, okay, clearly not. Um, and the corticosteroid group, interestingly enough, like just doing a cortisone alone, um, isn't going to, you know, to reduce the inflammation, isn't going to necessarily fix the problem. And in fact, another study by um, Khan in 2000, uh, basically described these as effective in the short term, but unlikely to address the underlying problem. Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting. And I feel like this is one of those injuries where people do kind of, it's, it didn't just happen. It's been, you know, building up for months and months and months. And then all of a sudden they, you know, decide to go, go see the doctor about it. And then they end up in PT. And so it's been, um, yeah, it's, it's really a, a chronic, um, injury at that point. And so we've got, uh, you know, an uphill battle in terms of, um, strength for the surrounding musculature. And then also like to get that tendon back to its full capacity. And yeah, I think the, like you mentioned the kind of classic demographics and in runners, I think people have run through this injury for years in some cases. And, uh, cause it's kind of only gets bad sometimes and they're able to kind of work their way through it. So I definitely have worked with some people that have, uh, put up with it for a long time and are, uh, are in a, in a rough spot because it's going to just take time to, to get back to doing what they want to do. Um, and then also what about other, um, other types of injections or, or treatment options, um, anything out there that's, uh, that's helpful as far as like PRP stem cell, those sorts of things. Yeah. So PRP, um, that's platelet rich plasma. So that's a procedure where we draw your blood, spin it in a centrifuge, uh, take out the platelets and inject it back into the site of injury to promote some tissue healing. Uh, so there was one really good study, 
uh, was a, a well-controlled uh, randomized controlled trial uh, by Fitzpatrick uh, that was published in the American Journal of Sports Medicine in 2018, where they basically had patients with um, chronic luteal tendinopathy, and they're defining chronic by having this um, having these symptoms for more than four months, and they've already completed um, consistent supervised physical therapy, um, and they failed to show a lack of clinical improvement. Um, so the so that was the patient group. They received a single PRP injection um, in one group, uh, received a single corticosteroid injection in the other group. And what they found was that the corticosteroid group actually got better pretty quickly within that first six-week time frame, but then their symptoms returned somewhere between three to six months. Uh, whereas the PRP group, it probably took a little bit longer, um, somewhere around six weeks or so until they had noticed uh, initial symptom relief with daily activity. But then at two years, those effects were sustained. Um, so there's some, some evidence to support the use of PRP. Um, and just like with all my patients, I, I, I don't typically like to do PRP alone, um, just because it, you do still want to address all of those factors, the biomechanical factors and the education that's so valuable, um, in physical therapy, but there is some evidence to say that it is helpful. Uh, stem cells, not as much, um, uh, again, the, the data right now is very thin, um, with, with regards to tendinopathy. So, um, as compared to PRP, PRP is still the superior treatment if you're going to choose an injection option. I feel like the uh, the folks that I've seen that have had success with a corticosteroid injection are usually like non non athletes, non runners, um, kind of your older older population that just need symptomatic relief. And uh, yeah, I completely agree. It's I think most studies with corticosteroids like show that group is doing better in the short term, and then in the long term, there is either no difference or um, something like that. Just kind of other other regions as well. But yeah, I think people always do well if you, if you get the local musculature stronger, um, improve control around the pelvis, and that just takes time. And then um, yeah, just uh, uh, gradually ex- getting back to running. And most of the time, people can still run and, and still run quite a bit. Um, but just, um, have to keep it reined in that little bit so that they're not, um, you know, overstressing things while they're continuing to get stronger and, and, uh, but yeah, people always do really well. It's, luckily it's, uh, I think a pretty, uh, once you've got it diagnosed and, um, once you've got it settled down and you start building back up, I think it, everyone usually does really well. So good, uh, good prognosis from that point of view. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a common condition. You're, we're going to see it uh, frequently as marathon season builds up. Um, it's going to be very present in our clinics and, um, hopefully if you have this condition, uh, some of the tips we had today were helpful in, um, helping you find the right answer and then getting the right treatment so you can get back to your running. 